Waiburunigu to Take It Black. I'm Jack Lattimore. Yama, I'm Kira Jenkins. This episode, we're talking poetry and protest. And to do so, we've got a special guest, and it is Evelyn Aralun-Kor. Yiga, and how are you going? Tingiwala, I'm good. I'm very happy to be here today. I'm in very cold Wurrung country at the moment, um, which is lovely and uh, freezing. Yeah. Oh, you're down crazy. here. You're in you're in Melbourne. Yeah. I moved to, I moved for the job. I moved for Overland and then immediately next week we're all in lockdown. Oh so, tell, yeah. I did hear a whisper that you got that role. You're your co editor. Co editor, yes. First black fella in a permanent editorial role for a literary mm-hmm. journal in this country, which is terrifyingly, uh, terrifyingly late, I think, but mm-hmm. hopefully a, a good sign of things to come for black writers and editors in this country. Yeah, so are you getting a few more black writers through the publication than has been before? Or? We're working on that. Um, you know, I'm reaching out to a lot of mob always and um, it's really good to let people know that the option's always there. But it's, you know, being on the side of an editor now, it, it is really strange to just see, you know, the difference between how much free time a lot of other writers and freelancers get. And there's just, I think, like, a lot of a lot of responsibilities um, throughout black communities and black families that mean that like pumping out immediate think pieces on a topic like say, you know, Black Lives Matter, like, you know, I'm, I'm tapping on people's shoulders going, hey, can we run something? And they're like, sis, I'm at the protest. Like, you're going to have to get somebody else to write this right now. So it's, it's, you know, what we're thinking more about is actually how can we structurally create opportunities for mob to have that time um, to write as opposed to just endlessly trying to commission and, um, you know, endlessly tap on shoulders without doing anything to actually change the kind of the writing infrastructure so that we can, you know, we can get better editorial support, we can get better mentorship with people working on pieces. So we've got a lot of things, um, we've got a lot of things that we're planning, you know, residencies and, um, you know, different kinds of uh, different kinds of upskilling, as well as yeah, more opportunities for blackfellas, like more competitions and things we're trying to bring in. So it's all really exciting stuff um, mm. that that we'll be hopefully be able to you know start putting online and sharing real soon. Well, it's really good to hear. I'll have to uh, subscribe again. I lapsed a little while ago. How would I go about doing that? Yeah, so um, you can always subscribe online on our website. We've just got a very, um, you know, easy subscription process there on, on the homepage. You just click on um, activities and you can click on subscribe. You can click on submit, whatever you want. Um, but also with our print journal, we do have a subscription um, little slip there that you can fill out and you can send that to us and you can get yourself a subscription. Um, and, you know, we've obviously like, you know, investing money in literary journals right now is real tight for a lot of people but we do have with all of our prizes and all of that we've also got subscription packages where you want to enter some work into a paid prize you know we'll give you a discount on we'll give you a discount on subscriptions um and then you know we've got a daily online magazine too so even if you know people can't subscribe every single day we've got new content up there new essay fiction poetry up there for people to be reading so it's Mm. fun for everyone at every level of access i reckon there's a beautiful artifact as well the the hard copy Uh, Mm. got a a few being published in one or two as well so they're they're keepsakes for the the kids now (laughs) yeah um it's got a long history too that that journal What's the mm. backstory there? So started in 1954 um, uh, with Stephen Murray Smith and it came out of a lot of left-wing organising. Uh, it's always been historically Melbourne-based um, and it was started as a, you know, started as a progressive print journal um, to create a space for commentary and dialogue, um, you know, so it's historically always sort of published across, like, you know, Communist Party members, unionists, um, you know, broader socialists and leftists, you know, even sort of we do publish like small L liberals and stuff as well on on certain topics and things. So it's generally speaking always historically been 
a quite progressive journal, um, the oldest progressive literary journal in the country. Um, and, you know, it's, we're, we're starting some work on a new project, actually kind of pulling a lot of that history of Blackfellas writing out of the archive, because, um, you know, with, with um, this many years of publishing, you do lose track of what's been written and who contributed to the journal. So we're really excited to be going through that archive and just finding work from Blackfellas, you know, from 50s, 60s, 70s that might, you know, might not be in circulation anymore. So um, it's it's got that really rich, progressive and organising history, but it is also one that, you know, myself coming in as editor, I'm really interested in, um, you know, the fact that the journal was always a space for, um, you know, writing about black issues, writing about land rights, um, you know, writing about civil rights. And so we're trying to do our best to kind of, you know, pull some of those pieces out and pay respects to those and find a new way of of, um, of hosting that work for a new audience today. So it's all, you know, really cool history. Um, I'm excited about the history, as, uh, as excited about the history as I am about the future of the journal going forward, really. Brilliant. Well, that certainly slots in pretty neatly with our theme of, uh, well, poetry of protest, more literature of protest mm -hmm. there. But you've been the, the host of Black Rhymes Poetry Night up there in Sydney for a number of years. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we've been working with, oh yeah, that's good to say Lorna Munro's recently come on as well and she's okay. been doing a lot there too. It's um, kind of holding down the fort for me while I'm down here. Um, since 2016 we've been running. Kira, have you been a part of that? I know that you're a writer, you were in the uh, Growing Up Aboriginal anthology. Yeah, I am. Um, no, I'm not. Um, I'm not really a, a, a poet, but um, the um, my, you know, my style is more kind of a longer form than that. Um, I I do envy, you know, the talent of a lot of our our, our poets, um, and just seeing, um, you know, anthologies like Firefront, which was le released last month, is. Um, you know, it, it, it stokes that, that kind of envy as well. And I know, Evelyn, that, that you were part of that um, firefront. Mm. Can, you, can you kind of give us a bit of an insight into that? Yeah, Firefront is just so fucking deadly. Um, probably shouldn't be swearing. It's my enthusiasm for the book. Um, yeah, Firefront, um, Alison Whitaker discussed it with me pretty early days in the project. She said she's working on an anthology of Aboriginal poetry, which, again, you know, that's something that historically we've actually got, like Blackfell's got a really long, um, uh, you know, really long legacy of working in anthologies. Um, Kerry Reed Gilbert, Annie Kerry Reed Gilbert, who sadly passed last year, um, worked on so many amazing anthologies and collections. So it's not just, um, you know, a catalogue of our poetic history. I think it also steps into that tradition that, you know, a lot of Blackfellas have published collaboratively for a really long time, actually longer um, than, um, you know, longer than some of the single-authored poetry collections that you see these days. Um, and I think the way that Alison did it, um, you know, was was really interesting and really innovative and pushed this into a new direction. So she's not only collated, um, you know, quite a historical body of Aboriginal poetry, so not just looking at this idea of the new and emerging, which is often like a really dangerous pitfall, this idea of new and emerging, because we end up losing a lot of voices that have been around for a real long time, but that haven't had enough respect paid to them, haven't had enough attention paid to them. Um, but, you know, including the, the new work, the historical work, but also sectioning that and having essay and having commentary as a part of, as a part of the collections, I think, is, um, you know, Kira, you're talking about um, working in sort of a longer form and, and kind of maybe envy on, on poets writing in that kind of that being quick and snappy. Um, but I think, you know, I think that a collection like Firefront just demonstrates across that range of form that there's actually just a place for every kind of writing under this 
broad banner of what we call poetics now. And I think Blackfellas have so much stylistic diversity, which this collection really demonstrates across like spoken word, prose poetry, conceptual poetry, lyric poetry, like we've got it all and we're real good at doing all of it. So um, bringing essay into that and bringing commentary, um, you know, Chelsea Bond's got a gorgeous piece in there that I absolutely love, um, you know, which is about family inheritance. Um, I, you know, I wrote an essay, a section essay that was a little bit more, here's me with my conventional scholarly academic hat on showing you that, you know, like I can tell you in my own words how great I think these writers are and how amazing they are. But I can also show you with the literary history that, you know, that, that we've all been taught in schools how incredible and amazing we are. We, we're, you know, we can do it however way you want. So I think it's just a gorgeous artefact right now of, um, you know, that history of organising and collaboration as much as it is an artefact of our poetic spirit and expertise. Well, I spoke with Alison last month, I think, when the book was first released. So maybe we'll mm. just have a listen to that right now. The book is looking to be a collective memory of the big black renaissance in verse that's happening at the moment. So it's setting out to think about where does the poet, the power in First Nations poetry come from? Where is it taking us? And what is the precedent that the Indigenous public owes to poetry in particular? So it tries to collect this new generation of poetry that's definitely developing and blossoming right now, but also pays heed to the people who did the work to get us to this point where something like this is possible. So there are poems that speak to one another in really interesting ways. Um, I'm thinking of Udru Nunakal's Son of Mine, uh, which is accompanied um, by Elizabeth Walker's Grandfather of Mine, both two poems speaking really lovingly uh, to the late great Dennis Walker. Um, and the collection opens with a letter um, from Chelsea Bond to her ancestors and to her children as well. Um, which is followed by a poem by um, Alexis Wright called Hey Ancestor, uh, which is kind of these two bookends to the collection, thinking about uh, what we owe to the generation before, but also what we will learn from them to be good ancestors and to practice that in our poetry. When I was um, asking people to do essays for this collection, so we have five essayists who each react to 10 poems written by First Nations authors, and we chose people who weren't poem, poets themselves necessarily, but had other kinds of thinking to them to, to represent just how powerful First Nations poetry has been in creating a p political consciousness for First Nations people in particular. And so the poetry is always responding to something that's happened in our history, in the way that we relate to one another. Um, but it's also laying out in some way a vision for the future, um, a vision that we share together and while it's unifying us, it's in no way uniform. So poetry has this kind of centralizing, organizing tendency um, for our mob that I think is certainly not unique to us in terms of First Nations globally, but I think is unique to First Nations people in particular. Thanks, Alison. Uh, that was Alison telling us a bit about Firefront. I we're keen to hear a little bit more about your work, uh, Evelyn, and also, Ellen, uh, you've joined us. You also are published in Firefront. Uh, you've got a, a poem in there that's from your most recent collection, um, Throat. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Throat before we open up this discussion a bit broader. Yeah, Throat is about four years of poems um, and really the title comes from the idea of speaking truth and speaking um, from the heart and speaking things, speaking about things that um, are sometimes difficult to, to talk about but necessary. Yeah, it's, I had a read through uh, most of it, um, but it was a speed read, and I don't think you meant to read poetry like that. Um, what struck me, though, was that today's theme uh, is about poetry and protest. 
a lot of the the work that I that, that struck me was about that contestation of space around the body uh, in throat. Would that be an accurate sort of reading? Yeah, definitely. There's a, a few poems, few poems there about the body and how and the politics of the body. Definitely. You got your pet crow there. Looking here. Yeah, a couple of them out out there. Like. So where are you at? Where are you at right now? I'm on Turrbal Dargan, um, north of Mianjin. Um, in my on my sitting on my back deck. This is the house that I grew up in. I lived here from um, when I was five years old to uh, 16, 17, I, I left home. Um, and I grew up here and went with my mum, my dad and my, my younger brother and went to the local high school. Um, and I'm back living here, living with family um, the last year or so. And it actually really kind of helped me write this book, Coming Full Circle, Coming Back to This Place, um, a place of many memories um, and close to where my family are from, where our ancestral land is, which is south of Brisbane. Um, Malanjali country is just south of Brisbane, Logan area and uh, part of the Yugumbe language group, which is uh, scenic rim, Gold Coast area. And so I have family all around Southeast Queensland. It's very much informs my work. And mm. I very much feel like I'm speaking, you know, as a Southeast Queenslander, as a Mullinjali person. Just on that, having a look through Firefront, just to get back over onto, onto that work for a moment, both Your Throat and Firefront, both published by UQP. In We just heard from Alison, she talked about the Black Renaissance. Is UQP driving this? So there seemed to be a lot of really great stuff coming out of UQP. Well, I wouldn't say UQP are driving. I would say actually black fellas are driving it. But it's an interesting, it's an interesting We're borrowing question. their car. Yeah, yeah they, exactly. Drive it like you stole it, kind of thing. Um, but are they like are they are they really um, you know making an effort to publish more black writers and you know black anthologies mm. and stuff? It just seems to be yeah. The last twelve to eighteen months, it seems to be a, yeah. a lot coming out of there. Well, the real kind of history comes back to nineteen eighty-eight, where there was a big push that was like combined black fellas and white fellas at UQP. You know, they had. Uh, Auntie Ujuru Nunakal was there, Uncle Jack Davis was there saying, you know, it's time, you know, 1988, you know, it's time we start publishing our work. So that led to the, the start-up of the David Unikon Award um, and the Black Australian Literature Series. It was started at UQP in 1989, the first published book from that series was 1990 and by the late Graham Dixon, and it's a poetry book called Holocaust Island, which is like such a powerful title that still really speaks volumes. So UQP having the David Unipon Award, never actually being UQPs, because we've got to think of UQP are a, a white publisher. They are owned by a white university but the idea was that black fellas were going to have all, they were going to have say in all, all of the processes, um, the editing and the publishing of these works. And that's still instilled in the work that we do today. So my book came out, it won the David Unipon Award. It came, my first book came out in 2014 and still you know at that time the numbers are still were still quite small you know like you think about the hundreds of books that are published by the Australian publishing industry every year there's only a really small percentage of them that are black authored 
And we have Magabala Books on the West Coast that are Aboriginal owned publishing house. We have UQP committed to publishing at least one Indigenous authored book a year, sometimes two, three, four, hopefully more and more. But it's that percentage of work that needs to grow. And I think maybe that's what we're seeing the last couple of years with you know anthologies like this uh evelyn's book coming out next year with uqp like can we make it more than just one or two is this drop bear? works mm -hmm. yeah that ellen's going to be editing yeah oh, drop I, I, I wanted to talk about your is it it's not out yet though is it Evelyn? no so we're looking at a february march release next year and another one on uqp yeah, another one for UQP. Um, and this is really exciting as well, like with Ellen editing, um, editing this work and that being another like new opportunity. It's so rare that, um, you know, uh, blackfellas get to work in editorial relationships with other blackfellas. Um, and that's something that, um, you know, like, yeah, there are a few emerging opportunities that have arisen and, um, you know, Ellen, you used to work uh, for black and right and for for some really cool initiatives that have gotten gotten that going but um yeah to be able to work you know to be able to work with Ellen on this book given that like you know Ellen was the first person who contacted me when I was shortlisted in a in a competition with you back in like what 2016 or something like that and yeah. you know and you were just so enthusiastic and like oh my god another black poet amazing wonderful and now it feels like very exciting to be able to come full circle not only to be publishing with you know with a publisher that's got such an amazing list of writers like you know Annie Janine Lane um you know she's an amazing mentor um, and to be, yeah, to be joining that like catalogue there and those really impressive names is just an absolute dream come true. Yeah, well, just before, Kira's going to jump in with a question, but looking at the, for Firefront, looking at some of the names that uh, included, uh, that had their works as part of the anthology, names like Lisa Blair, uh, Udra Nunakul, who you mentioned before, Jim Everett from down Tassie, um, Kerry Reed Gilbert, who I know has been influential uh, on your writing, um, Ellen. Um, Jack Davis, who you mentioned, Alexis Wright. But also, this young crop coming through. Uh, Denzel, Baker Boy. Uh, Briggs is in there. Stephen Oliver. Uh, and Dylan Boller. They're names that perhaps you know, audiences wouldn't expect to see in a poetry anthology. Um, but... I know, Ellen, that you've also been involved in, I think maybe edited, something that's come out that, um, that Denzel's involved with as well. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, it's, you know, I also had a book, I, I worked on an edited come out just very recently. It's called Homeland Calling. And it's, there's, a, there's a forward in that book from, from Denzel, from Baker Boy. And it's a, it's a collection of hundreds of black, it's from Desert P Media who do uh, workshops in communities, uh, hip hop workshops. So it's a collection of lyrics that make up these, these amazing songs that you, know, you can check out by amazing uh, First Nations peoples, like from Torres Strait, from WA, from Central Desert, from Queensland, New South Wales, from everywhere, and mainly from these young voices. A lot of these these works are in in language as well. Like that was something that I got to to work on is like building a glossary and seeing how many languages are in this work, uh, in this book, Homeland Calling, uh, which is really incredible. And and Baker Boy talks in his intro about how uh, powerful it is for him to rap in his languages and how he like didn't really see himself as being special that he just like naturally grew up speaking like four languages but then um seeing that for like a non-indigenous audience how powerful that is to like show that 
um, our languages are like still alive and well and um, the younger generation um, are using language to like talk about country to talk about culture mental illness and there's like such a wide-ranging themes in this book um, but so many similarities as well so like it was a it was a real privilege for me to do you know I don't just net don't just see myself as like a, a writer and a poet as an individual I see someone as like hoping to use like my skills to um to support other as many as possible um young and emerging writers coming through um how i'm gonna butt in again here kira sorry how do they <laughs> how do they go on the page because i've got this oh, the lyrics yeah yeah like that's really comes back to your your question jack about you know in this firefront collection as well as homeland corner calling there's like hip-hop lyrics you know you've got briggs you've got baker boy and um you know that we we associate we, we listen to the track you know it's a different experience listening to the track than it is like reading on the page and um yeah it's a it's for me as an editor it's like really kind of like technical stuff to sort of hopefully um have that experience um on the page but you know you're getting a different experience i always say you know it's not going to be the same as listening to the track but we live in such a textual world we're just like consumed by text all the time that i think it's um you know to sort of try and capture um the spirit of this these works is is a really kind of pe people who don't listen to the track are, are going to read it and get a different experience definitely cool um we might just have a listen to Rayleigh lancaster uh, she's going to read from her work haunted house take it black haunted house one when my cousin told me her house was haunted, I replied, of course it is. How can it not be? When they built buildings on the bones of the broken, used our skeletons to frame the walls of her Lego house. She told me to get over it. Chose to ignore the screams, the taste of blood, the smell of rot. Two. My cousin told me her house was haunted by a little old English lady with purple hair and no children. It couldn't be anyone else. Her psychic friend told her so. I reminded her that our great-grandfather was shot dead just down the road and how the elders said there was a massacre site not far from the creek where, as children, we swung on a rope swing that hung loose around the branch of an old gum like a noose. She told me to shut up. Those things didn't happen anymore and the old lady's name was Ethel. Three. My cousin didn't like my reply when she told me her house was haunted. So she asked for a second opinion. Had her priest come around and exercise her house? Had her psychic friend do another round? And that night, resting peacefully in her no longer haunted house, my cousin dreamed of the Australia the history books taught her. She forgot the stories we were told, under glistening stars with dark shadows bouncing off the light of the campfire. Stories of death, of stolen babies, of blood-soaked land. She forgot that all land on this land, since the landing of the white man, has been haunted. So Ellen, you, you touched on something before that I, I kind of want to come back to as well. And that was the idea of, um, you know, supporting younger um, artists and I, I remember, you know, um, reading uh, Comfort Food back, you know, in, in 2014, I think it was. And, and um, kind of, it was the first kind of poetry that I'd engaged with outside of, you know, what I was directed to read at school. And it was kind of, it changed my perspective on, on poetry. So I wanted to ask, you know, what you see as a kind of, you know, I had my issues in that, you know, I had the issues that were important to me 
kind of reflected back in that piece of work. So I wanted to ask you what you kind of thought as was, you know, the role of, of your work and, and poetry in, in doing that, in reflecting our, our, the things that are important to us and kind of making space for that in, in literature. Oh, thanks, sis. Um, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I think it's like, yeah, maybe writing for a younger self, someone who didn't necessarily grow up with like reading works that represented me. Um, and I got a beautiful um, message from a titter the other day that said, thank you for, you know, your work makes me feel safe. Like your reading your work makes me feel like the world is a little bit safer. And like, for me, that's like a really powerful sentiment. And yeah, of course you sit there on your computer hoping that you're going to touch people, but just not, not ever being sure what's going to touch a chord with, on, you know, with your work. So, and I, I write for a general audience. I didn't expect that my work was going to be so popular with like say teenagers or young people because I don't necessarily write directly to like a, a, a younger audience, like a, a school aged audience, but to see that take up like with some of my work being taught at school and like seeing that feedback from young people, like is like whether it's young queer people, young black fellas, young people of color, young women, like it's just amazing. Um, and it does make me think that like the future generations, when they write their stories, it's just gonna keep having that ripple effect. And yeah, it's really, really beautiful. And Evelyn as well, I'll come to you too. and and ask the same thing, you know, what do you see as, as the kind of role in, in your work of, you know, making space for our, the things that are important to, to black fellas? Yeah, I mean, it's really such an important question for how we all, I think, like guide ourselves and, and create with a sense of responsibility. Um, and I get a lot of like creative energy from that as well. Like it's, it's something, like feeling like the work that I do might be, you know, read and enjoyed by other black fellas is, is really like a nourishing thing, I think. And, you know, Comfort Food was also one of those collections for me, like reading that a few years back before I kind of like really knew what black poetry could be um, and how it could kind of push into areas that had otherwise felt like, you know, they weren't for black poetry. So writing about like writing about food, writing about sex, writing about the body, like all of these different things like comfort food, I think is a really powerful collection for a lot of young writers entering into entering into this this space um, to just reveal what possibilities there are. And you know, like I've been spending quite a lot of time working on my own craft and working out what poetry means for me and what I want to do with it. So settling into something that feels comfortable and that I'm comfortable with knowing is like a little bit different. It's my own personality. It's my own particular um, kinds of protests with the world. That's something that like, I really hope that not just my own work individually, but seeing how my work kind of relates to a broader community of writers you know like I would never want someone to read Drop Bear as a sole book like I would want them to have also read Comfort Food I want them to read Black Work I want them to read Throat you know I want them to read Walk Back Over like there's so many powerful collections right now that I want Drop Bear to be just like one little part of that I hope helps emerging writers realize like hey, this is a huge conversation and I've got a little place in that. I've got a little part in that. And, you know, now working as an editor myself um, with Overland, I'm just like so comfortable and so nourished by the idea that like I can give 
what I want creatively alongside supporting what other people want to give creatively, you know, that it's not a competition. Like I think that was the most important lesson that I did learn, you know, when I just started out with like that short list for the Nakata Brophy, like 2016, with Ellen reaching out to me, ostensibly like my competitor, someone who like, you know, is, is um, you know, potentially going to beat me with this as you did end up, um, which I'm not bitter about at all. Um, you know, just knowing like, yeah, actually like, hey, this is, this is cool. We're all just really happy for everyone's success. No one's trying to write the definitive black book. No one's trying to have the best black poem that we're all just so happy and so grateful and nourished by everybody else doing this. And so that's why I think like, you know, anthologies are also just so important because we just get to do it together. And that's just where I hope the future of our like creative energy goes into collaboration. Yeah, we do the same in uh, NITV online, don't we, Kira? Share a byline or two collaboration is way forward. I just wanted to get back across to the protest element of uh, the episode. We heard from Alison say that this fire front, but the essays, poetry, black literature creates political consciousness. Now, is that what is behind this black renaissance of you know, black writing, renaissance of black writing? Uh, is it, or how firmly is it hitched to uh, what we're seeing, you know, right now with the Black Lives Matter uprising and Aboriginal Lives Matter uh, return to the headlines here in Australia, but internationally. Is this, what did they used to call them in the old days, a push? Is this a scene? Is this, you know, what's happening? I mean, yeah, I'm reluctant. I'm always reluctant to use anything that makes it seem like this might be a trend, you know, because trends die. But, you know, like looking at all of these different kinds of moments where perhaps like, yeah, there was like a lot of energy and a lot of support um, historically, you know, because we've been in these patterns of like connection and mobilisation and real strong networks of black writers and publishing and those you know, links to protest have always been there. It's just the difference is less about like where the energy is and it's a little bit more about like how well that's supported, how well that's documented, you know, like there was so much amazing stuff going on in the early 90s and then John Howard comes in and the black armband history had a huge impact on literature. But, you know, there was everyone was still out there at the protests reading poetry. They were still out there performing their work and mobilising with this, this really close relationship with the spoken word and the rally, you know, the chant, um, that, that unity's always been there. I think now we're getting with social media, um, like a higher intensity um, and, a, and a much stronger coverage of the work that's already been done and that then gives other people the opportunity to feel like they got something to say, um, you know, I know from my own experience in, you know, organising, if you have like that open Q&A space, if you have that share the mic session, you're going to have three or four blackfellas who are just itching to read their poems, who have, you know, been writing incredibly passionate work that they've just got sitting there um, that, you know, is always ready and waiting to go. So I think at any point in our history, we have always been ready to go with this mobilisation of our words and our bodies towards justice. It's just about who passes us the mic and whether we are sharing that with each other and whether that's being, you know, the attention is there. Is that being recorded and remembered by history? Because it's always been happening, I think. And now is a great time where people have been listening up and realising the importance of it. Um, but, you know, whenever we do this and whenever we have these moments, we've just got to look back not too far off in our history and be, you know, remember that five years ago, 10 years ago, wasn't the case and to try to as much as we possibly can bring those people who were left behind five, 10 years ago, make sure they're still here and make sure they've got their opportunity now. Now on protests, how did you guys go on Saturday or other days uh, over the last week? Uh, did you... Uh, attend what what was your involvement if you were there were the readings i couldn't even hear it 
Melbourne, it was so big. There was so much amazing, incredible organising. You know, we heard singing and you could hear the chanting and stuff. Um, I brought my clap sticks and just, you know, I think it's testament to what a good turnout it is that you can't hear the speeches in a protest, I reckon. Yeah, that's right. What about up in up in Brisbane? It looked pretty big in the, yeah. uh, the images that we've seen uh, through NITV. I think, NIT. we, I think we've got 30,000 in Brisbane. I think it was actually the biggest, which is... Really incredible, really incredible for, for Brisbane. I, I wasn't actually there. I was there in spirit. Mum um, and I decided to, to stay home. Um, she's in the high risk mm. category. And she was sort of saying, you know, it would, would have been great for her as, as an elder to, to be able to participate in, in some other way. And uh, we were looking at, well, we were just watching it on, on TV and having some really good conversations about it and it really really makes me angry that these protests are, are deemed illegal i know that we we got approval through the great work of of blackfellas and and non and non-indigenous allies we got approval last weekend but to not have that further approval for further protests is something that really makes my my blood boil because um we have every right to be protesting we have every right to be on the streets demanding justice. And we heard some comments from the PM that were pretty uh, ordinary yesterday, Kira. Can you just take us through those? Are you across that? Yeah, I am. Um, he was calling for people to be charged for for going to these um, to these rallies, and you know, listening to his kind of interview on, on um, I forget the station, was but Radio GB, Down in Melbourne. Like 2GB. Yeah, I, was it 2GB? Yeah. It was, it was, it was no, you're Melbourne. right, it was in Melbourne. It was, what um, was it? 3, 3, 3 AW. AW. Yeah, yeah. That one, yeah. Listening to that, I, you know, I was listening to it and he was saying, you know, that the cause had been hijacked, you know, by people for unrelated things, you know, that the process, had, you know, and... He also said that, that there'd been no history of, of slavery in Australia. So of slavery, yeah, yeah, just mind-boggling things. You know, like hearing that. You know, what do you like? How do you guys kind of feel about you know hearing that from from the prime minister? Yeah, what a hack, hey! Like, I really feel like the the message from our prime, well, not my prime minister, not our prime minister but Scott Morrison uh, was that black lives don't matter. That's clearly what he's been saying, that black lives don't matter to him, that black lives don't matter to our current government. And, um, yeah, it's the ignorance of not knowing the history of our country, saying that we're hijacking an American thing where black lives matter has been going on since colonisation 250 years ago. Scott Morrison clearly doesn't know his history or he is being um, deliberately ignorant around these issues um, because, and he's also clearly not with the, the general Australian population, black, white and non-white, who are really behind us. And um, to, yeah, to say that this is, that we're importing an American issue when Black Lives Matter has been happening since colonisation here in Australia and that we are, have been demanding justice for deaths in custody for decades is clearly so uh, out of touch and so deliberately um, misleading that, you know, that we are, we're, we are in solidarity with brothers and sisters in America, but we are demanding justice here. One thing that got me was that he claimed that, you know, uh, people that attended the rally were being inconsiderate of their neighbours, which I tweeted about saying, when did that ever become a thing in the colony? Uh, but yeah. more so than that, as, as Kira pointed out, he... Um, and not only the PM, but, you know, elsewhere yesterday, was this complete erasure of a lot of history around slavery. 
the blackburning, the stolen wages, the pearling industry. These are things that as writers, they've been covered before. Did anything uh, that the PM said along those lines rankle you, Evelyn? Yeah, I was speaking about it a little bit this morning because some of the commentary, you know, it's 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 a matter that that has been already addressed very very swiftly. Like you can't get away with making these kinds of statements um, today because people are, you know, increasingly aware of our history. You know, of blackbirding, uh, the history that there were African people on um, on the first fleet and in the first moments of invasion. We have actually had a shared. African history that is also entangled in in the transatlantic slave trade, obviously the stolen wages, like there's just so much historical evidence there that it it can be dismissed so easily and so so quickly by people who have that awareness. But the defence that I saw people pulling out and running to is, oh, you know, he clearly just didn't go, he didn't learn about it at school. And I am so exhausted by this defence because, you know, for a start, the mandatory Aboriginal education policy came in in 1987. So anyone who's been to school after 1987 had to learn about Aboriginal history. But that doesn't mean that they weren't also learning about it at school prior to that. So it's a a, a silly defence for the majority of people, I think. But you know, thinking about this this issue of education and knowledge and awareness, you know, so many blackfellas I meet are just so intimately and and um, minutely aware of every historical detail of these events. You know, they know every policy, they know every boundary line, they know what every mission was, every reserve was. They've just got so much history and awareness that's in them and it comes from listening to black people and it comes from being in these conversations. It didn't come from a classroom. And so saying like, oh, you can't be upset with Scott Morrison, he probably just didn't really learn about it at school. You know, the immediate response to that is that, like, his ignorance is his own responsibility, especially as a leader of this country or a supposed leader of this country. Um, But furthermore, isn't that just a testament to the fact that we should be supporting public education better, that we should be creating more opportunities um, for Aboriginal education to have a role in schools, for our history to be front and centre um, as we're talking about the history of this country, like it was our history first and remains our history. Um, so it's just such a stupid defence that I see people running to, to excuse away ignorance when people who are ostensibly have way less resources to access this information. Now, magically, we know it all and we know it, you know, we know it so well. And I just, I'm always so frustrated when this ignorance, when people fall back on on these assumptions about what their responsibility should be to educate themselves alongside defunding the public education that if they were to believe this excuse, the public education would be the thing that resolves it. But, you know, who cares about... Who cares about poor schools teaching black history because clearly there's a no, no accountability for these endless cycles of just spreading misinformation. Um, even if you're the prime minister of this country, you can get away with going on talkback radio and spilling out lies. Yeah, it's just, it's so disheartening when you see, you know, like Chelsea Bond on the drum the other night talking so passionately and with so much, you know, with so much eloquence. It's she was on point, to... hey. Point? Yeah. No, no because... she was on point on the oh, drum. Oh, she was on point. Oh, I thought you meant the point. <laughs> well, she was oh, on the point as well, but the week before. I'll get, I'll get a on TV point. one day and I'll keep up with this stuff. But <laughs> she was so on point and it's just like, it's just, it's just so absurd that, you know, our most vulnerable communities are out here, you know, stating these facts and are just so beyond excellence, you know, just really astounding. And then you just get this endless nonsense being spouted on talkback radio and on morning television. It's like, hey, the experts are here and they're ready and they're waiting and they've got everything lined up. The second you're ready to listen to it, they've got everything lined up. Well, we see what happened when Bruce Pascoe's book, I think was the the inaugural novel uh, set for the Parliament Reading Book Club might have been last year, mid-last year or something, and we've seen what happened in the subsequent months. 
uh, with the attacks on PASCO uh, through newspapers and, and individuals. They didn't like the fact that they had to read uh, uh, something that, you know, put forward an alternative um, on the sorts of history that was, uh, you know, that's driven home uh, through most, uh, you know, leaders and preferred national identity. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, just sort of testament to the amount of ignorance that goes on where for, you know, I see so many people who say, you know, oh, Bruce Pascoe and Dark Emu completely changed my life and changed my thinking. And again, that's just, it is, you know, it's an amazing book. It's such an important book. You know, that, that knowledge is, has been out there for a long time. And um, not only, you know, not only um, was it accessible and the people wanted, people wanted, you know, the broader community to know because it could have meant that we could have intervened in climate change and the impacts of that a lot earlier. But, you know, they, they finally get around to reading it and then they decide to destroy a man's life because they didn't like the book. Well, we see those yeah. erasures continue on you know, the destruction of the Dugan Gorge, um, yeah. BHP yesterday or overnight, uh, fortunately pulling up. Uh, but, you know, they look like there was a number of uh, significant and sacred sites that they looked, you know, was in their way in terms of their mining proposals. Um, so we're still seeing this type of erasure on the daily in Australia. It's not something of the past. And I think, you know, as you said, Chelsea was really on point with that uh, on the drum. Now, unfortunately, we're out of time. We have to wrap up. But I just wanted to thank you both for joining Kira and I and apologise for Kira for not uh, allowing too many questions from her from that side. Next week, we're hoping to uh, have Ray back in for the first episode back after ISO which Ray and I will co-host. But uh, until then... Goodbye for now and, and remember to take it black. Oh,